Well, good morning again, everyone. I hope you uh, hope you enjoyed that video. It was a uh, it was a lot it was a lot of work for John had mentioned it for all the people putting that VBS together. But it's so cool to sit in the back and just watch it all happen. I know it was a little dark during the worship time. It's cool to see all the kids just dancing around, singing and 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 praising God and and hopefully it's lasting and effective. I I'm just reminded of that verse I mentioned last week that. The, the, our toil, our work in the Lord is not in vain. So pray for each and every one of those young kids that uh, God's word, the seed that was planted in them, will just develop and be very fruitful, and they will be people who love the Lord as they grow older. Let, let's pray for them now and our service. Lord God, we thank you again for today. We thank you for all that you give us. Uh, this building, Lord God, a place where we can hold events such as uh, Vacation Bible School, for kids that attend our church and also a lot of their friends. And, and we pray, Lord God, that the seeds that were sown through Bible study and through the, uh, the helpers that just talked to the kids and showed them that they cared and helped them make crafts and made food and, and even playing games, Lord God, that all that would be a way that you could speak to them, soften their hearts, give them an experience that they will remember for a lifetime. But more importantly, Lord God, that each and every one of them would come to know you and follow you all the days of their life and we pray this and ask also lord that you would speak to us as we read your word this morning and it's in jesus name we pray amen all right open your bibles to the book of judges as we look at uh, chapter four and the title the title of this morning's message is stepping out in trust usually we say stepping out in faith right But it's really stepping out in trust. It's more than just blind faith, especially for believers. A lot of people think, oh, Christians just have, you know, you just must have faith. Like there's no reason, there's no rhyme behind anything. You just have this blind faith. But it's really stepping out in trust. And this morning's message, I hope uh, God will will reveal to you exactly what is going on in the message. And hopefully in your life, wherever you're at in your life, are you stepping out in trust? As I was preparing this week's message, I thought of the time when I had to do that. Uh, there's a lot of times that I do that. But one time in particular that reminded me of this morning's sermon was coming to Renaissance Church about, I think, are we in our 13th year? Maybe like 11, 12 years ago. I came in a year after it started. And I left a really big church in Riverside um, where well, I came over here to be the youth pastor, but I was involved at a church where the junior high youth group was over 100 kids every Sunday, and there were three services, and I was a leader of just the third service. So I remember uh, me and Mindy were were really involved in the church over there. She was a, a woman's group leader for the Bible study, and she also did children's ministry, and I was involved in teaching the junior high and, uh, and then there was this opportunity to come over to here, to this church, a small church in Corona, when we were back in Corona, to be the youth pastor. And it was kind of exciting. But like always, as a good believer, well, I need to pray. I need to hear the Lord tell me which way to go, what to do. And so probably like many of you, you pray, and you're waiting, and you're praying, and you're asking other people to pray for direction, and... You hear this, nothing. You're like, what? Okay, come on, Lord, the Bible's all these examples of prayer, and you answer, and, and so uh, 
obviously, I went to my wife, and um, I've said it over and over again about Mindy. She is like she has like this direct line to God that's like a back door or something because when she prays, just things happen. So I enlisted the help of my wife and said, hey, Mindy, um, you know what we're, we're thinking about doing? Can you pray to God for me and ask him to show us what we're to do? Because I'm not getting anything. And she always gets something. But this time, nothing. She gets nothing. And I'm like, are you kidding me? What am I supposed to do? You know, and you're thinking, okay, so if God's not answering, maybe that's a no. But maybe he wants me to step out in faith. And I'm, you know, weighing the pros and cons. Okay, I can go to stay at this church where I have to impact 100 kids every Sunday. Or go to another church where there's like two kids, no ministry going on. Where am I going to be most effective? Because that's what I was, I was, uh, that was my, my prayer. Like, where, where will I be most effective? And uh, obviously, I, uh, I chose Renaissance Christian Church and still nothing, you know, but I, I, I'm still think I'm still waiting for God to say I made the right decision. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I know I did. I know I did. I wouldn't I wouldn't change it. The relationships and just all that I've learned and grown and being a part of even I mean, that's something I would have never done at the other church because they have, you know, thousands of workers. They're like, you just do this one thing and that's all you need to do. But where was I going with that? I had to st- I just had to step out. I remember the pastor at the time of this church when I was talking to him about my decision. And he he said, well, maybe you just need to step out in faith and and. And I said, maybe I do. Maybe there's just not a clear direction. And I just do it. I mean, what's what's the worst that can happen? You know, um, so I just I did it. I, I just said, OK, God, it's it's a church. It's serving you. It's just in a different capacity. And I and I made the move. And and uh, so that's the morning sermon. Let's go eat. Well, today uh, we're going to see a similar story where. Uh, in the book of Judges, we're going to talk about that. How do we, you know, how do we know, you know, in the process of this morning's sermon, how do we know we made the right decision? I mean, because God, I mean, I don't know about you, but I've never heard God speak audibly. You know, the only time, the, only, the thing I remember, I read this quote, says, you want to hear God uh, audibly, then read his word out loud. Because if we truly believe this is God's word, then when you read it out loud, he's speaking audibly, loudly to you. But I know, like most of you, we want to hear that voice. We want to hear God say, hey, Robert, go left, go right, you know. What, you know and some of you have to make big decisions in your life. What school do I go to? Uh, what, do I change jobs? Do I move to a different house? Who do I marry? Um, things like that. And does God, why doesn't God tell me that? Hey, this is the person I want you to marry. This is the car I want you to buy. This is the job I want you to do. How do we go about making decisions day-to-day in our life like that. I pray this morning that I help you in some way see that through this morning's text. So let's look at this more. Uh, let's look at the story of a lady named Deborah and a man named Barack, not Obama. But he would be good to listen to this. So if President Obama, if you get on YouTube, no, just kidding. Let's, let's read. So the book of Judges, uh, chapter 4, verse 1 says, The sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. 
And the commander of his army is Sisera, who lived in Hazaseth Hagoyim. And the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, for he had 900 iron chariots, and he oppressed the sons of Israel severely for 20 years. So let's stop right here. So if you've been here for a few weeks, you know what's going on in the book of Judges. We're going to see stories over and over again where God raises up a judge to deliver Israel because they've been oppressed, because they've fallen away from the Lord. And you can see very in the very beginning, verse 1, that the covenant of God is broken again by the nation Israel. Look, the sons of Israel did evil. It says again, Israel did evil in sight of the Lord. So they've fallen once again back into their old ways. They said they were going to change. God got them out of trouble, and they said, I promise I'm going to change, Lord. This time we're going to follow you. We're going to do it right. And they fell again. Or even the following generation, really which what it is, has fallen again. They've broken the covenant of God. And so what does God do? God, in verse 2, it says, The Lord sold them into the hand of the king of Canaan. So as you can see right away, God is in control of all these things. God sells his people to a foreign nation to be oppressed. And if you've been here for a few weeks, you know why. To discipline them, to get them to wake up, to get them to come back. Sometimes bad things happen in our lives, a believer's life, so that you wake up. Oh, man, I'm, I'm off track. I need to come back to the Lord. Or sometimes it's just to strengthen you, as we learned last week. Sometimes we go through hard times so that we can be strengthened and ready for the next trial in our life. But the Lord has sold them into the hand of Jabin in the form of discipline. And the king's commander, we're told, is named Sisera. And Sisera is really going to be the guy that we uh, follow along in this story. He's the guy that's sent out by the king to oppress the nation of Israel. In particular, I believe, the tribes of Naphtali and Zebulon, as we'll see in a few moments. In verse 3, we're told how Israel responds to this oppression. The sons of Israel cried to the Lord. Why? Because this man had 900 iron chariots, and he oppressed the sons of Israel severely for 20 years. As we go through the book of Judges, we will see every time there is no hint that Israel's crying out in repentance, that they realize that they've fallen away from the Lord. No, they're crying out because they're oppressed severely many times they're really crying out because they don't like what they're going through it's not that they're not bowing down and saying lord we've sinned against you please get me out of this i'll follow you next time no it just seems that they don't like that they're they got busted they got in trouble they're in slavery and they cry out to god and as we saw last week if you were here god continually has pity on the nation of israel and pulls them out just like a parent right when we we discipline our kids and we see them suffer for all, at least for me sometimes. I'm like, okay, you don't have to, you know, serve your whole, you know, what is it called? Uh, I don't What is it? Sentence? No. <laughs> oh, I forgot it. See, I don't even, restriction. Thank you very much. Thank you. I drew a blank there. You know, we have pity on our kids. And God has pity on his children. He doesn't like to see them suffer, although he knows they need to. To learn a lesson, God continually pulls the nation of Israel out of oppression. And here Israel is crying because this man Sisera has 900 iron chariots uh, and an army, and they're oppressing him. 
And now, a lot of times when you read Scripture, you think that God does it right away, right? Oh, you just cry and God delivers you. No, it says 20 years. 20 years they cried out to the Lord. If you remember in Egypt, how long did the nation Israel cry out before God sent Moses to deliver them? I think it was like 400 years, right? Sometimes we lose sight of it that just because God doesn't answer us the first time, then that means he doesn't want to do it. We continually cry out to the Lord or God delivers us right away. No, sometimes we need to sit in it for a little while. So what does God do? God graciously raises up a deliverer. Look at verse 4 now. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapideth, was judging Israel at the time. She used to sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the sons of Israel came up to her for judgment. So we're introduced in this story to a prophetess named Deborah. She's not the judge. Well, she judges. Let me rephrase it. She's a judge. It says she judges between people. You know, this is the actual uh, only judge that we've seen so far where the judge really means a judge. People come up to her and ask her for direction and guidance and decisions on things, and she judges. You see, the, the men come to her as she sits under the palm tree. But she's not the one who's going to deliver them like the rest of the judges that we've seen so far. She doesn't deliver them. Matter of fact, she is God's mouthpiece. That's why she's a prophetess. That's why it says she's a prophetess, I should say. She communicates Yahweh's response to the, to the people and answers their cry. I also want you to notice something else. Her location near Bethel, and Beth means house, and El means God. So Bethel was the house of God. She's located near there. Now, this may be the author's hint that, you know what? Israel is so far gone that even their Levites, their prophets, their priests are not doing a good job. That she's the one that's doing it. She's the prophetess. The men are going to her. It's like, where are all the men in the nation of Israel? If you don't step up, right, the woman's going to step up and take charge. She can't sit back and wait for the man all the time. Don't say anything, women. Just let's, We're going to move on. Just leave it there. But she's judging Israel at the time. She's the one that's running things. And so look at verse 6 now. Now she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abdenoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Behold, the Lord, the God of Israel, has commanded, Go and march to Mount Tabor, and take with you 10,000 men from the sons of Naphtali and from the sons of Zebulon. So her command is that God is going to use this man, Barak, to deliver Israel at this time. She's God's mouthpiece. She's speaking for the Lord. And she's saying this guy, hey, come here. I got a message for you. You're going to be the one that's going to deliver the sons of Israel out of their oppression. God has heard their cry. And you are going to go and do it. She's the one who's judging the nation of Israel. Something to notice, chapter 5. We won't be studying chapter 5 because chapter 5 is the poetic story or a song of chapter 4. So everything in chapter 4 is written down in poetry in chapter 5. But I want you to notice what she calls herself. Turn to chapter 5 with me and look at verses 6 and 7. 
It kind of, she describes her role in the nation of Israel. It says, in the days of Shamgar, the son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were deserted, and the travelers went by roundabout ways. The peasantry ceased, they ceased in Israel, until I, Deborah, arose, until I arose a mother in Israel. She's the mother of Israel. That's how she sees herself. So I just wanted to point that out. So she summons Barak, calls him from the tribe of Naphtali, and she tells him what he needs to do. Look at verse 7 again. This is what God is going to do, and he speaks through Deborah. He says, I will draw out to you Sisera. Remember, he's the commander of Jabin's army with his chariots and his many troops to the river of Kishon, and I will give him into your hands. So she says, Barak. You're going to go out and deliver the nation of Israel. God is going to give you the foreign commander and his chariots and his army into your hands. That's God's word to you. And what does Barak say? Look at verse 8. Then Barak said to her, if you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. Now, before we make fun of Barak, and saying he needs his hand held by a mother. I don't think that's what's going on, really. She's the prophetess. She's the one speaking for God. She encompasses, and so to speak, as a prophet does, God's presence, God's mouthpiece. So he just wants God to be with him. I think that's really all that is there. A lot of times we make fun of him. We're like, oh, you can't go do it. You need your mommy with you. No, I don't think that's what's going on. And this isn't the first time that that's happened where somebody's asked to go do something, that they ask God to be with them. And as he says it, I want you to go with me. If you don't go, I'm not going to go. He wants that assurance that, hey, this is God's desire for him, right? How many times in our own lives where we feel that God is telling us something or we know God is telling us something, but we want that little added assurance. We want that assurance can you can you go with me i think of my son jonathan when i'm putting him to bed he knows it's bedtime but he wants me to go with him to put him to bed just a little assurance that he's going to be okay so here barack asks deborah to go with him and i want to give you a few other examples of other men where they ask god hey to be with me or are you sure this is what you want me to do? Just real quickly, in the book of Moses, or not the book of Moses, sorry. What? See why well, you got to bring your Bible? They are the books of Moses, if we want to get technical. In the book of Exodus, the story of Moses, look at chapter 3, verse 11. After God had told him that he was going to be the mouthpiece, he was going to be the one that was going to speak to Pharaoh Look at what Moses says in verse 11. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? And this is after God says, you're going to go to Pharaoh and I'm going to deliver the, the nation Israel. He says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, certain. And then God says, certainly I will be with you. See, he says, I'm going to be with you, Moses, even though I've already told you, I'm going to be with you. And this shall be a sign that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. And so Barak 
sees Deborah as that mediator. She's the prophetess and sometimes maybe acting as a priest. Remember, again, she's stationed near Bethel, the house of God. So, again, this could be the author's illusion that the, the priesthood is gone. Israel is so far out of whack that Deborah's filled that role in the meantime until a man will step up. And later in Judges, turn with me to Judges chapter 6, and we're going to study this guy next, a man named Gideon. Look at verses 16 through 18. As God has called him to go out and be the judge, he says this, But the Lord said to him in uh, verse 16 of chapter 6, Surely I will be with you, and you will defeat Midian as one man. So Gideon said to him, if now I found favor, God has just told him I'm going to do this. But he says, now if I found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you, you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come back to you and bring out my offering and lay it before you. And he said, I will remain until you return. Even the great man Gideon needed that assurance, even after God has told him. You see the picture? I hope you see the comparison of our own lives when we ask God for something and and he shows us, and we're still asking, well, are you sure, God? Are you sure? You know, you're taking baby steps as you move. Are you sure? He's like, go. Go. One last example in the book of Jeremiah, the great prophet Jeremiah chapter 1. Starting in verse 4. Jeremiah, writing of his account when God called him to ministry, says this, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Behold, I formed you in the womb. I, excuse me, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. So Jeremiah has this great call in his life. He's admitting it. Before he was even born, God set him apart to do this great ministry. And look at what Jeremiah says. Then I said, Alas, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak because I'm a youth. He's saying, I'm a kid. I can't do this, Lord, even though God says he's going to do it. Sometimes we see our lim own limitations, and God says, I'm going to use those for my glory. But the Lord said to me, do not say I am a youth, because everywhere I send you, you shall go, and all that I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Just another example of where somebody commissioned by God is a little bit afraid. And, and again, I can't help but think of that time where I felt like, you know what, I, I really feel like I, I want to go to this church. And it's, there was nothing really hindering me, but I wanted that assurance, you know, from God, uh, from my old pastor at the church who was probably like, no, nah, you can't, you shouldn't go, <laughs> you know. Or Mindy was like, I don't know. She's like, I'll just go where you go. I'm like, oh, come on, that's not helping me. Although that's nice to hear and reassure, I was reassured because she was involved in ministry and she's willing to drop that ministry to go wherever I go. I was like, can't you just go to God one more time and hear something from him? So Barak asking for help. Go with me, Deborah. And Deborah, going back to our text now in verse 9, she says, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the honor shall not be yours on the journey that you are about to take, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. Then Deborah rose, went with Barak to Kadesh, 
Barak called Zebulon and Naphtali together to Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up with him. Deborah also went with him. I can't help but wonder also that maybe there is a little lack of faith in Barak. You know, did God really call me to do this? Deborah, you know, I want you to come with me uh, and go with me all the way out there to the ministry. It's just something I've wondered. Because a lot of times when we ask God and, and we read clearly in God's word what it says and we still ask God again. I read this story. Uh, I was reading a book this past couple, these past couple days and there was this funny story of Adam and Eve. Where, uh, you know, Adam went and picked all the fruit from the trees in the garden except for the forbidden one. That was what Eve did. And uh, he brought it to Eve and Eve was going to make dinner. And she said, well, Adam, what do I make? You know, this is my first big decision. I, I want to do the right thing for God. What do I make? Can you go and ask God what I should make? So Adam goes, okay. And he goes and, and he prays to God and he hears nothing. Except for the fact that God said, I've given you all the trees in the garden. Eat from them. Except for the forbidden one. That's all God said to him. He repeated his word to Adam, which he already told him. So he goes, he goes to Eve and tells her, hey, God didn't tell me which fruit to eat. He just said, all the trees of the garden are we can eat from. But he didn't tell me which one we're supposed to eat from. And he goes, and I didn't bring the forbidden fruit to you, so we don't have to worry about that. She says, okay. Well, um, what do I, he goes, I think we should eat apples. I feel like this peace in my heart that we should eat apples. And as you're preparing it, I bet you you'll feel that peace too. So she goes, okay. She's going to trust him, and she starts uh, to get the apples ready. And as Adam leaves, she calls him back again and says, Adam, uh, how do I prepare them? Do we eat them sliced, diced, mashed, cobbler? You know, I want to make the right decision. He's like, uh, she's like, can you go to God one more time and ask him? He's like, okay. And he goes to God and asks God, you know, God, how are we to prepare the apples? And he hears God's word again. You can eat of the trees of, in the garden. That's it. Eat anything you want. So he goes back to Eve, and he, she tells him, what, what did he say? He said, well, he just repeated his word back to me. He's given us all the trees in the garden. We can eat from whatever we want. So he's like, I just say we eat all of them. Let's make a fruit salad. And she goes, okay. And he walks away, and she goes, well, what's a salad? The okay, sorry. The point being is God already said in his word what to do. He's not going to tell you the, the exact specific which way to make a fruit. And a lot of times, we as believers think that God has to tell us to move left and right and right and left. No, he's given you freedom to choose. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later. And he's already told Barak, I'm going to give it to you. Just go and fight the battle. Look at verse. Let's skip down to verse 12 now. And we'll see that God finally defeats the foreign army. Then, verse 12, then they, then they told Sisera that Barak, the son of Abnoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. Sisera called together all his chariots, 900 iron chariots, and all the people who were with him from Herosheth Hagoim to the river Kishon. Deborah said to Barak, Arise, for this is a day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Behold, the Lord has gone out before you. So Deborah's saying, okay, 
Time to fight. Go, Barak. You have all the people that need. Go out, arise, and fight. God's going to deliver them into your hands, all of them. Verse 15. Excuse me, the, the remainder of verse 14. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men from following him. The Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. So the leader takes off from his chariot. And he's like running by foot now because his whole army is defeated. And verse 16 says, But Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Herosheth Hagoyim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not even one was left. Now Sisera fled away on the foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Hebor the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. So there's, he's going to familiar territory. He's going to a place where he's going to be safe, or at least he thinks he's going to be safe. And he's hiding out from Barak. Verse 18, Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my master, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. And he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a bottle of milk and gave him a drink. Then she covered him. He said to her, Stand in the doorway of the tent, and it shall be if anyone comes and inquires of you and says, Is there anyone here that you shall say no? But Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg and seized a hammer in her hand, and went secretly to him and drove the peg into his temple. And it went through into the ground, for he was sound asleep and exhausted. So he died. That's pretty nasty. Verse 22, And behold, as Barak pursued Sisera, Jael came out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. And he entered with her, and behold, Sisera was lying dead with a tent peg in his temple. So God subdued on that day Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the sons of Israel. The hand of the sons of Israel pressed heavily, excuse me, heavier and heavier upon Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they had destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. And that is how God routed Israel's oppressor. So that prophecy of Deborah earlier, remember she says, the honor is going to go to a woman, not to you. That's the, the prophecy coming true right there. Barak's chasing this man, but it's this woman, Jael, who gets the honor. She kills the king or the commander of the army for him. And going to chapter 5 real quick, verses 24 and 27. Here's the honor she gets in this poetic song of chapter 5. Look at this. It says, most blessed of women is Jael, the wife of Heber, the Canaanite. Most blessed is she, the woman in the tent. He asked for water, and she gave him milk. In a magnificent bowl, she brought him curds. She reached out her hand for the tent and peg, and her right hand for the workman's hammer. Then she struck Sisera. She smashed his head, and she shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he bowed, he fell, he lay. Between her feet he bowed, he fell. Where he bowed, there he fell dead. And that's the poetic song of Deborah. Great song. Let's put that to music. Most of us probably wouldn't let our kids listen to that song, but it's in the Bible. Anyways. So that's the story. 
And as a result, if you look at verse 31 of chapter 5, it says, And the land was undisturbed for 40 years. So Israel sinned against God. They did evil in the sight of God. God, again, raises up a nation to oppress them. They cry out to God. God delivers them and gives them rest for 40 years. As you know, Judges, what's going to happen after those 40 years, after that generation passes away, that new generation will rise up and do evil in the sight of God. Again, and we'll be learning that in the next few weeks. But what I want to point out and really focus on now as we close here in a time of application is about that decision-making. How did Barak know that he could truly trust Deborah and trust God to do what she says he's called to do? Because I don't know about you, but if somebody told me, I got a word from the Lord, and this is what he wants you to do, I would be very skeptical. One, I'm not from that background where that happens a lot. And I want to know, before you tell me that I'm supposed to go to Somalia on a missionary trip, that God's told me to do that. Well, how do you know? Maybe they're right, and I'm being disobedient. Again, going back to how I started, how do you know what God wants you to do in your own life? Are you supposed to date this person, date that person, go to this college? You know, do you choose UCLA over USC? I'm going to tell you right now, USC is satanic, so you can't go there. That's in the Bible. That's in the book of Moses. Just kidding, just kidding. We'll just move on. I just had to wake you up. All right, everybody awake. I know you're smelling the hamburgers right now. So how do we know? How do we respond when God calls us, calls you out to trust him? Well, let's look at this. What is God, first of all, called the church to step out and trust for? He's called the church, which we're a part of. What has he called us to do in this world? It's very clear in Scripture to proclaim the gospel. 1 Peter 2.9 says that he's called us out of this world, out of darkness into light, to proclaim his excellencies. The church's number one priority is to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's our job. That's undeniable. That's our first priority. We're to be evangelizing this world. We are to tell the world that they need the Lord. And it's not like, hey, you need God to be good, because honestly, you could do good things without God. But you need to realize that without God, your sins are not forgiven. You've sinned against a great God, and he will punish sin. He's provided a way for you to come to him and to be forgiven and to have a life that he's called you to live. But living outside of that, you won't get that. You can have a good life and great things, but you're not living what God want, want, the way God wants you to live. That's the message we have for this world. It's a message of the gracious God who loves you, who calls you to himself, who sometimes allows things in your life to get you to come back to him like he does to the nation of Israel. So the question for us is, it, so that's the big overriding picture of the church what about you and me individually within the church what's your role in that because each of us are called to do that but we do it different ways i do it from the pulpit some people do it from up here other people help in vbs 
Some people just pr- are just praying, not, and I don't mean just as, as belittling it, but that's what they do. They're great prayer warriors. I mean, they could pray for a long time, and specifically, like I said about Mindy, you know, it just seems like he answers her prayers all the time. There's some people who are gifted that some people are gifted with financial gifts and they give for the furtherance of the gospel or they help out in just anything. But each and every one of us has that role in the church. We also have that in our families. We are called to glorify God in our families. Me as a husband is I'm supposed to glorify God and treat my wife as Christ treated the church. You brothers and sisters. Are you being a godly witness to them, to your brother and sister? Are you treating your little sister or your older brother the way God would want you to treat them? Are you doing it for God's glory or, you know, because you want to be mean or whatever the case may be? We have roles in the church, in our family, in our schools, in our workplace to evangelize, to do what's best to glorify God. What role do you have in that? You may be asking, well... I don't know what I have, and and so how do I know? How do I know what God has called me to do? How do I know what God has called me to step out and trust for? You know, we don't have a Deborah in our life that says, God wants you to do this. And like I said, if somebody told me that, I'd be like, I don't know. I'm going to wait for God to tell me. He could tell me, not you. Well, what assurance do you need that God is calling you to do something? If you think about it in your own life, what assurance are you waiting for? Barack wanted Deborah to go with him. That was his assurance, that the presence of God was going to be with him. Well, the first thing that we need, and, and Barack did not have this, is he didn't have the full counsel of God. You need to understand and know the word of God because, again, as I mentioned, God will speak to you through this. It's very clear on certain things about what God has called us to do. So you got to know what God has said, first of all. And you got to know who God is. Some things that God would tell you to do and some things that he might not tell you to do. It's very clear in Scripture. So with that said, what decisions do you need to make? How do you know you're stepping out in the right direction? Because that's the thing, right? How do I know that I'm going, as I mentioned, the right college? How do I know I'm uh, choosing the right girlfriend, boyfriend, husband in marriage, wife in marriage? How do I know I take that next opportunity in my life and career and ministry? I never got a clear answer in ministry from God. At least I don't think so. Maybe I didn't hear him. And he was speaking to me like he did to Adam and Eve. I already said, go out and eat any fruit you want. Here's some questions to ask yourself when making decisions. The number one is this. Is this a violation of God's revealed moral will? What I mean by that is God desires that his children are holy. So if the decision that you're going to make is going to make you unholy, then right away you can say, that's not what God wants me to do. There's a lot of people in our culture today that are trying to change God's word. Right? Churches are now gay affirming. They're saying, well, God, well, God really didn't say, it's not really what it meant. It was talking about relations between a young man, I mean, an older man and a young boy. That's not what we have nowadays. We have two mutual people loving each other. No, that's not what it means. So you've got to know what God's word says, first of all. 
That's a violation of God's moral will, and that's not ever going to change, no matter what society says. God's concerned with our holiness more than our happiness, if you think about it. He wants us to be holy. God, I don't know anywhere in Scripture where it says, God says, be happy for I am happy. He says, be ye holy for I am holy. In your holiness and pursuing holiness, I promise you, you will be happy. So number one question to ask yourself in the decision that you're making, this is the easiest one, is it a violation of God's revealed moral will? And when I give you these questions to ask yourself, you know, all of them don't, might not pertain to the situation that you're in. But they're good to just run through. Second, secondly, is this going to build my faith? Is this going to build my faith in the decision that you're going to make? Whatever it is. You know, maybe you're thinking, well, I'm going to buy a new car. What car do I buy? Well, sometimes it's just our actions, our, our motives, and our pride. You know, I tease, I half-heartedly tease Mindy that I want a BMW next year. I'm hoping. No. She says, no, you're not getting it. But if I look, why do I want that? To be more holy, you know? Or is it a pride thing? Is it a, a status thing? Probably, I don't know. I just like them. They're cool-looking cars. Right? Yeah. So the Bible doesn't say don't buy a BMW. I mean, come on. But you need to ask yourself in those decisions, why do I want that car? Why do I want to make this? Why do I want to date this person or that person? Is it going to build your faith? Thirdly, have you sought counsel on that decision that you're making? Have you ran it by your friends, your relatives, uh, a pastor of the church, the elders, your parents, whatever that decision is, seek counsel. God tells us to, you know, that to seek a lot of counsel before we make decisions. Fourthly, ask yourself, how will this affect my witness? If if I make this decision, how is my witness going to be for God? Is it going to make it stronger or is it going to make it weaker? And I thought about that, you know, on a, on an honest level. When pastors buy extravagant things, I think that unfortunately is, has a bad connotation on them, doesn't it? You know, the media will pick up on that really quick. Not that the media is following me or anything, but if you think about high prolific pastors, whenever they do something, and, and maybe they save for it and they deserve it, I'm not here to judge them, but it, it's frowned upon, even by their own congregation sometimes. They buy a big house or a lot of cars or they, they dress real fancy no, it's not for me to judge, but they have, it's something we have to think about. How's that affecting my witness? Will it draw people away from the gospel and Christ or draw them closer to Christ? Fourth, or fifthly, how does this bring glory to God in the decision that you're going to make? How does this bring glory to God? Is it going to bring glory to God? Or maybe it's a decision that really doesn't have a bearing either way. It's just about your motives. And then finally, just make a decision. If you could run, run your decision through that, for example, n- let's just say a, who I'm going to marry. Number one, as a believer, who are you to marry? Thank you. I just wanted to make sure of that. A believer. So the, if you came to me and go, hey, you know what, I want to get married to, and you're a believer, and you want to get married to a non-believer, I would say no. That's against the word of God. That's the number one thing we tell our children. Number one. If you bring somebody home, they better be a believer because if they're not, then, you know, you could just be their friend. You're not going to date them. After that, 
you know, choose whatever you want. As long as they're a believer, number one, now it's all about personal preference and, you know, is it going to make your life stronger or whatever the case may be. So that's like a decision we all need to make in all the things that we do. Number one, is it violating God's moral law? And if it's not, then we're pretty much free to make any decision. So going back to the very beginning, and I started, okay, do I stay at this church or do I go to the other church? Well, it's not breaking God's moral law unless I was going to a cultic church, first of all. But it wasn't, obviously. I'm here. Um, (laughs) You guys wouldn't be here if it was a cultic church. Um, At that point, then it's okay, now get counsel. Pray about it. Make a decision. You know what the most freeing thing is for a believer about their decisions is Romans 8.28. And we'll close with this. And it says this. Let me... Let me pull it up in my Bible. This is the best thing for believers. So you don't have to be gripped with, uh, you know, analysis paralysis. Sitting there and going in your head over and over again. Do I need to do this? Do I need to do that? Once you've ran it through the filters, make a decision. And then you have this promise. And we know that God causes all things, even the decisions that you make about a spouse, a school, if you go to USC, this even pertains to this too. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. For who? To those who love God. That's why I said it's for believers. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. So just make that decision. If, it, if it's not going to break God's law, you sought counsel, it's not going to damage your faith in any way, one shape or another. It's going to bring glory to God on either decision. Then just make the decision. Just go for it. Step out and trust God, what he said in his word. He's going to work it out for, even if it's like, oh, man, I should have stayed here. Or I should have done that. God's going to work it out for good. There's the promise in Romans eight twenty eight. So even though Barak was like, well, you got to go with me, Deborah. I want God's presence. God worked it out for good. Even though maybe, you know, Jael got the praise, God still ultimately delivered Israel. And I don't know if, sis, if uh, Barak really cared about that. And that's a whole other message anyways about losing out on some things that God, you know, could do in your life if you make the wrong decision. I mean, I don't know. Uh, maybe I missed out on something at the other church, but, you know, that video for me just reassured like. That's a blessing I would have never had at that other church, watching kids worship God and stuff and getting to know all of you that I know really well and and all those relationships, you know. God worked it out for good. And whatever decision you have in your life, as a believer, God will work it out for good. Let's pray. Lord God, we uh, thank you so much for your word and, and just the assurance that you were over all things in the believer's life and you work all things, good and bad, to good, for your good, to those who love you and are called according to your purpose. Lord God, help us to make decisions that do not violate your moral will and give us the courage and strength to step out and trust in our lives. And Lord, even help us when we think we're making the wrong decisions to just slow down, seek counsel, continue to pray about it, and trust in you. I pray that you'd help each and every person this morning who needs to make a decision in their life to trust in you, to step out in trust and make that decision.
And it's in your name we thank you for this morning. Amen.